Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Todd Krautkramer. He's the CMO of Cradle Point. He's an entrepreneurial technology executive with more than 25 years of startup experience and a passion for building growth companies. We get into his background and his transition over the years from computer science to on the development side to product management, sales, and then into marketing most recently, as well as a stint as CEO during a downturn in the 2008 financial crisis. But we also spend a lot of time talking about the current situation that we all find ourselves in with the COVID-19 pandemic and what he's doing and what he suggests and advise other marketers to do at this important time in history. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Todd. Todd, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Alan. It's great to be here. And I want to give a quick shout out to uh, Ted Pulsiver because he's the chief revenue officer at Market Cube, and which is now part of Schlesinger Group. And he recommended that I get in touch with you. And um, so I'm, I'm happy to have you on the show and looking forward to the conversation. But I want to say thank you to Ted, too. Yeah, agreed. Thanks, Ted. And I look forward to our conversation. Before we get into this, let's start with your background. I believe you started or you know educated in computer science or the equivalent. And I uh, would love to know how your career progressed and when you, you know, when you made the switch to marketing, if you will. 
Sure. It, it's an interesting story, and I'll give you kind of a thumbnail sketch, but it's it's worthy of of discussing because it's really shaped me into the marketer that I am today. So you're right. I started out in computer science. Truth be told, I was on my way to be a orthodontist. And uh, I took my first computer science course, as I'm sure many of us I have similar stories back in the t- in the day, and 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 forever my life was changed. I realized uh, it's really what I want to do. So I got trained in computer science. My first job, out of pure luck, was in networking, and I was developing code at that time that ran some of the world's largest networks. One of our customers was AT and T, and and they themselves had one of the world's largest uh, networks. And what really frustrated me is I could not really relate to how people use my code in the real world. And it bothered me so much that I actually took a job with AT&T as a customer in the IT team responsible for building networks. And it was the greatest five years of my life. I mean, we built a huge network at a time of divestiture when the old Bell companies were all being broken up and had to develop their own IT infrastructure. But it gave me empathy that I still carry with me today for the challenges of IT folks. And I went from being a network designer and implementer to ultimately being a strategist and planner. So I kind of went through the gamut, so to speak, as as a customer. And then I realized, as I looked out my window every day down Orlando, Florida, being the network planner, that all of the vendors that I was was working with on a daily basis, they were all driving cars far nicer than mine. And I realized that they had kind of control over their income, depending on how good they were, how savvy they were, how effective they were, how hard they worked, they could really control their income. And for me, if I was pulling all-nighters, it didn't matter. I got the same paycheck. And I realized, gee, that that sounds like something I'd really be interested in. So I talked to AT&T, HR, and they said, hey, I'm thinking about getting into sales. They said, no problem. We have this 10-year program that will take you from where you are and eventually get you into sales. And I said, you know, I was kind of thinking about doing it now. So long story short, I left. I went to uh, to Siemens, a subsidiary of Siemens. I was building at the time some of the largest data networks for the carriers. Uh, went through product management, which was a great experience, but made my way in a couple of years into sales and became regional sales manager for the Northeast and really enjoyed it and found I was, I was actually good at it. Then I joined my first startup, first of four. And I, I began, I was the only sales guy. I was knocking down some big deals with big banks and big retailers and other things. And, and I got so frustrated by the poor marketing. It seemed like everything I was trying to sell and communicate to customers was never coming from my marketing materials. So finally, the CEO, frustrated with me, constantly complaining, said, well, if you think you can do a better job, the job's yours. I said, I think I'll try it. So I got into marketing and uh, I've been there ever since now through four startups, two of which were acquired, two went public. And I did spend one stint as a CEO during the Great Recession at a company called Gearworks, which we sold eventually, but that was a turnaround. And I got a lot of experience in raising capital and hiring and building teams and things that only CEOs do, even though a lot of other executives participate in, They, they shoulder the burden of a business and its performance and its consequences. And that was also a tremendous experience. It made me a better better CMO for the following reasons. I have empathy for customers. I understand how my partner in sales works, thinks what they need. And most importantly, I'm a better CMO because I understand what our CEO thinks and needs and the pressure that he goes through every day and the role marketing has to play 
in really shaping the strategy and driving the go-to-market and seizing the opportunities. So that's my background. Rather interesting for a marketeer, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. No, it is. It's a it's, it's a fascinating background. And it's amazing to me, actually, how many CMOs I've had on, not necessarily started in computer science, but at some point in their past have done a tour in sales. But I, I think that extra dose of being on the customer side makes you definitely unique. I want to double click on something because Gearworks, you were a CEO, but you also managed that and I believe ended up selling it through the down, the last downturn in 2008 financial crisis. As we're sitting here, both in our work from home settings with coronavirus around us, just curious what you learned from that experience. Oh man, I, I learned a ton. Truth be told, coronavirus is really my third major kind of downturn, if you will, or major crisis that has far-reaching implications. First was, of course, the implosion of the tech boom where I was at a startup. Second was the Great Recession, where I was CEO of Gearworks, as you suggest, and now, of course, coronavirus. But it was very educational because from my standpoint, you really learn the importance of a syndicate. And there's a lot of ways you can capitalize a business, but I'll tell you what, there's a lot of wrong ways to do it because inevitably, there will be some bump in the road. There'll be some disruption in what was a perfectly lucid plan to bring a new product to market or build a new market. And you're going to have to rely on your investors to kind of help you through. And, and that's a little bit what happened with me at Gearworks. There was uh, some changes in my syndicate right before the Great Recession. And uh, that kind of left me at a disadvantage when the capital market seized up and the VCs were all kind of parsing their portfolio and deciding which ones were going to survive and which ones they were going to cut loose. And if you didn't have strong partner, a strong player on your team, so to speak, from that, that venture capital firm, you could be, in fact, you were one of those organizations that got cut loose. So I learned a lot about capitalization, about building strong syndicate and the role that boards play in, uh, in, in building a, a quality, sustainable company. And also learned a lot about just managing through a crisis, how you have to switch up your marketing, how you have to really make those hard decisions about making decisions about individuals for the sake of the company overall surviving. It was a really a tough time, but as often the case through these trials and tribulations is when you learn the most. Well, I, I hope we're not in a um, another 2008 scenario situation. It, it depends on who you look at, who you talk to, and, and which report you read about what the potential recovery might look like from what we're in right now. But I'm I'm hopeful, as I imagine many people are, that we're, we'll see a V return <laughs> and a quick recovery. But it's wrecking havoc on marketing plans. And I'd love to know like how you're thinking about your business and marketing during this kind of crazy time, if you will. Yeah, certainly it is wreaking havoc. But I would like to think of it the other way. I mean, CMOs should be wreaking their own havoc, uh, so to speak, on marketing plans. And what do I mean by that? We are clearly in a crisis marketing environment right now. There's no question about it. And if we do the things that we've always done in bringing our products to market and positioning and messaging and using all the different channels at our disposal to reach our target audiences, it's akin to shouting in a hurricane. Nobody's listening. And they're certainly not listening to the old messages 
about how our technology can help you develop new strategies and deliver interesting ROI over the next two years, right? Every customer is in some type of emergency response mode. It's either survival for the business, it's either a fundamental shift in how people are working, or it's mounting a response to the crisis that we're dealing in. And our customers at CradlePoint are a lot of healthcare providers and first responders. So we have a smattering of all of that. But as a marketeer, if you're not dramatically changing everything that you do at this moment in time, you're behind the eight ball. It seems like Cradle Point, and we, we haven't actually touched on Cradle Point, so maybe, maybe we should talk about what you guys do, but it seems like you are uniquely positioned to not just survive, but maybe thrive during this period. And I'm just curious if you can talk to, one, describe what Cradle Point does, and then maybe speak to how you guys are responding to the, the current crisis. Since our inception, CradlePoint has really been focused on unlocking the power of cellular networks. Today, LTE, of course, uh, but now on our doorstep is 5G, really unlocking the power of these networks for business use cases. So if you're a major retailer, it's pretty easy for us to all relate to the fact that retailer networks just can't go down because everything a retailer does at the point of sale or point of customer engagement is electronic whether it's point of sale, the registers. Of course, there's a, in, in the retail world today, there's a lot of other digital engagements that are happening, and all of these are reliant on a network to connect them back to the compute resources they need. So if that network goes down, the experience is dramatically impacted. So CradlePoint is in a lot of retailers so that if their traditional wired network fails, it'll instantly switch over to cellular, and the customer and the employees will never really know. Uh, think about police and first responders, firemen, emergency responders. Think about FEMA, all of these public safety services. What they have to do, of course, is in their vehicles, have constant access to data. You don't have the chirping on the radio like you used to for every single command because every situational piece of information they need, whether it's a fireman, uh, an EMS crew in an ambulance, or police officers in their squads, comes through that MDT or that PC in their vehicle. So for them, always on, always connected network is essential. And we provide cellular connectivity through a, a router that mounts in their vehicle and keeps them always connected uh, across one or more wireless providers, including FirstNet, which is the new broadband wireless public safety network for police, fire, and emergency services that ensures that their data always gets through, even if the cellular network is being saturated by consumers. And probably the third use case that we invo are involved in is, is in IoT. So if you've ever driven down Las Vegas Boulevard and you're just overwhelmed with digital signage, a lot of that digital signage is connected by CradlePoint. Every Redbox kiosk at the corner store is connected by CradlePoint. So a lot of these types of uh, high-value IoT devices, vending machines, surveillance cameras, and alike, digital signage, as I mentioned, are all connected by CradlePoint because it's pretty intuitive to connect the dots on this. These far-flung devices are really only connectable by cellular because they sit in the middle of nowhere, and they sit where wires typically don't go. So that's what we do. Nice. Well, I know one of the other, I'm thinking like personal user potentially of Cradle Point, 
I noticed a video, I want to say it was on your LinkedIn company page, but of home, home remote worker use case with this. I don't know if you're like me, but if you're in a neighborhood now with all the kids home and with uh, everyone working from home, uh, it's pretty big strain on the uh, cable or even data infrastructure networks that, that connect our homes. And it looks like you guys have a solution for the remote worker where you can have the same LTE connectivity that if you will, bypasses the home internet connectivity and, and pipes you directly into your corporate network. Oh, you're exactly so, right. We're an enterprise class product. We're not a cheap and cheerful MiFi device, if you will. And a lot of people have been bringing those home and, and setting them up. But but the advantage that we provide is if you've got a mission critical worker at home, say it's a retired doctor now that's being mustered into service at in New York, or for example, a case that comes to mind is a city of Northampton emergency services individual worker that now is is sequestered to his home uh, as part of the, the work at home requirement. And he has literally set up his office with multiple monitors and everything right in his home. So he continued to serve the city and those in need. But it's all connected by cradle point because that person must absolutely stay connected and must be isolated from the other craziness that's probably happening on his home network with kids and and spouses and others, you know, going connecting to school, working from home. So it's a great example, I think, of the role wireless can play in augmenting some of the other connectivity infrastructure and even extending into the home for critical workers. Yeah, it's a great use case that I think is just underlined and underscored at the current moment. Even if you're a computer, you know, programmer, right? And you're trying to just stay connected to your environment that you need to be on to to do your work. Um it's a it's a crazy time. I'm glad there's solutions like that out there, frankly. I know you've we've talked about a few different use cases, a couple of different projects or, or specific instances of how you you know what you're doing. Where's the vision of Cradle Point? Where do you want to be? Where do you want to go in the future? I'll tell you, our, our, our vision is, is simple but compelling, and it's based on a belief that look at all the wireless technologies before us and around us, whether it's the old 900 megahertz cordless phone, whether it's uh, wireless earbuds. The reality is, is whenever a wireless technology kind of crosses over that of its wired comparable from an economic and functionality standpoint. Think of wireless LAN as perhaps the greatest example. You go into a business today and you don't ask to be plugged into Ethernet. You get hired on, you're, you're given a notebook and you're given uh, a credentials for the Wi-Fi network and you're on. And whether you go to Starbucks or you come home and work, you connect via Wi-Fi, you don't even think about it. And then you go back to the office, you connect via Wi-Fi, you take your PC, or your notebook into a conference room, back to your desk. You don't think about an Ethernet connection. So what happened there? What happened is Wi-Fi networks, from a functionality standpoint and an economic standpoint, crossed over that of wired Ethernet. And the moment that happened, preference for Wi-Fi and wireless just dominated. Same with cordless phones, same with earbuds. You don't see as many people walking around with those wired earbuds connected to their phone anymore. So we believe the same thing's going to happen in the WAN. And what's going to drive that crossover of economics and capabilities is already starting to happen in the world of LTE, but will become irreversible as the world converts to 5G. In fact, 5G is going to be fiber fast, but literally the ability to pop up a network. And by the way, that's that's what's happening in the healthcare world today is they're, they're pushing healthcare delivery out into tents 
and in ports to uh, to receive, uh, you know, cruise liners. Yeah, exactly. And into the middle of the streets and into abandoned buildings. And they have to set up these instant networks, these emergency network responses that have to be implemented by IT, where there's no infrastructure. And wireless allows them to do that with the kind of performance and enterprise services that are needed to provide security, protectivity, and reliability. So 5G will make that commonplace. And someday, people will connect to the WAN wirelessly without even thinking about it, wherever they go, in much the same way we connect to the LAN via Wi-Fi. That's the vision of Cradle Point. We intend to be the company that leads the industry in providing that wireless WAN vision. Love it. Well, I like wireless, frankly, <laughs> as a consumer, and uh, I'm encouraged that there's folks out there like you solving this, solving these issues, and especially in this time of need, like you said, like these pop-up needs for reliable, secure networks and being able to get the job done. Thank you. And thanks to your company. I'm sure you've you've probably got folks that are working around the clock right now, frankly, to help. So I just want to say thank you for your efforts. Thank you. Thank you. We feel honored to be called to to serve at this time. And our technology is really playing a vital role in a lot of these uh, emergency response situations through healthcare, first responders, and even in the enterprise space. I want to end here and then we'll switch to personal side for a bit, but just any general advice you'd have to marketers, you know, marketing during. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This pandemic. Glad you asked that, Alan, because it's on the mind of a lot of marketeers. And while we've been through versions of this, we've never really been through what we're going through today. And that's true on so many levels, but especially true on marketing. So first of all, what has to change immediately is how you message and how you, you engage the marketplace with your solutions. And we've actually seen a lot of this on TV. It has to shift to, I like to say, an open arms type of approach where we're saying, look, we can play a role in helping you respond to this crisis. And however your business or organization has to respond. Some are on the front lines, some are struggling for survival, and we're here to help. So it can't be this hard sell that we're so used to in marketing, right, where we always think about how quickly we get to that call to action. It literally has to be palms up, open arms saying, we're here to help, because nobody in this crisis wants to be marketed to. They don't have time for it. They're really struggling for survival or struggling to help those that are trying to survive. So that's number one. You have to change your messaging day one. And your messaging will evolve. It'll go from we're here to help to you're starting to build some repeatable, referenceable 
use cases in this new crisis environment, and you're starting to build some reference designs in this environment. And as that starts to happen, and that'll happen over the next 60 days now, and you shift into the second phase of crisis marketing where you have referenceability. So this allows you to really, really get deep and focus on these use cases as if nothing else exists in your world, because frankly, it doesn't. And you start to modify your messaging of saying, we have helped others through this crisis in this way. Can we help you? So again, it's, it's asking permission, not making the assumption that you have the right solution for the customer, but now you have referenceability, which is so important. And let me give you an example. New York right now is a hotspot, as is California where I live, but soon it'll be in Minneapolis. Soon it'll be in Dayton, Ohio. Soon it'll be in Denver, Colorado. That's the next wave, right? So the things that we learn by helping where the hotspots are, we can now take to our customers in these other geographies and say, here's what we've learned with others like you. How can we help you with our experience? So that's phase two, experiential open arms. And then phase three, which we all hope to get to soon, which depending on whether a V or U-shaped recovery, back to your earlier comments, you know, will happen in Q3 or Q4. And that's really about helping customers get back to where they were before, helping them get back into the market, helping open up their businesses. It's still about help, but now it's about really focusing on the brighter tomorrow. It's focusing on not the crisis at our feet, but more what we have to do to get back on track. But it's still permission-based marketing. And it won't be getting back to the old world probably until we're into 2021. So all the marketing changes. And if you think about all the places that your marketing exists today, in display ads, in SEO, in brochures, in your channel, and on and on, all of that has to be reframed in the context of these three phases in the context of the crisis. Secondly, every dollar you spend needs to be analyzed. Should we be spending that much in this channel, which is akin to, again, shouting in a hurricane? Yeah, there are other channels that are more relevant at this time, given the customers and use cases you're trying to reach. So it should be anything but business as usual when it comes to traditional marketing spend across the different channels that we engage. And I think the third thing really is the responsibility to make sure that every individual in the company understands this shift in how we engage our customers at every point in the journey. So customer service even needs to be different in terms of how they message on the phone. In our case, we ended up putting in place a priority structure in customer service where our frontline responders in healthcare and first responders and others get priority over other types of traditional service calls that we get. So the change in the way we talk is not just in marketing, but really has to permeate the company and every engagement point that we have. So those are just some of the things that we've done and other marketeers have done in what I call uh, crisis marketing. I think it's very wise advice. So thank you for sharing. I hope hope marketers are out there, listen and and heed the advice. And I love the three phases that you laid out too. Um, And the the slight tweak as you go from phase to phase. Brilliant. So thank you. One of the things I do love to do on the show is to get to know the individual a little bit better. And I have this favorite question that I'd like to ask you, which is, is there an experience of your past that you feel defines or makes up who you are today? There actually is. It's um, maybe again, a little bit unusual, but my wife and I, after 
that time, 40 years uh, of existence on the planet and about uh, 15 years of dogged pursuit of career. And it was after one of my first IPOs, actually my second IPO that I was part of, of a tech startup. I realized that I was pretty much checking off all the boxes of what I want to accomplish in a career. But through our, our dogged pursuit, we never really built a family. So my wife and I started this journey, which was almost two years in the making, to adopt. And it led us to adopt two children, older, age 10 and 8, from Ukraine and from an orphanage in Ukraine. And I tell you what, that experience, that sudden reality of being a 40-year-old father for the first time, of not a, a, a baby in diapers, but a, a 10 and 8-year-old that had suffered greatly in their lives and seeing how hopeful and how incredibly resilient they are. I mean, it taught me a lot about an outlook on life and about dealing with, with challenges because my life had been nothing like theirs, but yet they were so hopeful. And, and while we thought we rescued them from what was a tragic existence, we learned later that was not the case because they had made a life that was full of hope, full of promise, full of aspirations in their dire situation, in their darkened existence in the orphanage without all of the things that we enjoy here in America and, and the privileges that we have. So it was very humbling. And uh, that only changed me as an individual, but I think it changed my outlook from a business person's perspective and from a marketeer's perspective. No, that's a beautiful experience. Thank you for sharing that. As a father myself of a 12-year-old now, I can only imagine what getting thrust into fatherhood feels like with an 8- and 10-year-old. Because I like to tell my wife that somehow, maybe it's in just the design of the human development process, but I feel like each stage of their life prepares you for the next stage. And I'll say what I mean here. So, you know, when, when my wife was pregnant, you know, right, like towards the end of pregnancy is probably the most uncomfortable time. And you're not really sleeping that well. She, she's definitely not sleeping that well. And, and you probably aren't either. If she's rolling over and kicking you every time. <laughs> And so, so then you're immediately prepared for the lack of sleep when they come out, <laughs> right? So true. And then that sleep deprivation takes over and you, and you forget how potentially painful that experience was. And so you think about having another one. <laughs> but uh, for me, we've always laughed about the fact that it feels like each phase prepares you for the next one. So you might have missed a couple of phases in there and it may have been even more painful than most of us might have experienced otherwise. So I'm glad you got through it. Yeah, yeah. well, I'll tell you something that while I thought for a brief moment, gee, it's going to be kind of cool having a, a daughter that's 10 and a son that's eight, and we completely bypassed the whole dirty diaper stage. And while we didn't regress that far, I can tell you that many of the stages of parenting where you're building the relationships and you're, you're showing through your actions and through your training how your children should evolve, you really can't skip too many of them because we found ourselves going back in time, so to speak, and providing all of that earlier nurture and connection that is so vital. So it's rather interesting how human nature works from that perspective. There is no short path. Right. That's a good point. That's a really good point. Let's move on a little bit. What advice would you give your younger self if you were starting over? Well, I, you know what I would, I would give myself, I was very reticent, though it seems like I embraced change and risk with abandon. The reality is I was very, very reticent, and I was probably moving more slowly through these transitions 
than I might otherwise do. And I probably struggled more with the decision process. And, and now looking back, the advice I would give myself is really to embrace change, to go towards what scares you, I guess is the best way to phrase it. Go towards what scares you from an experience, from a development standpoint. Because what I have found is that when I was the most scared from a risk standpoint, and what would this mean with my career, I was learning the most and gaining the most experience. And it was deeper learning than what you might learn otherwise, because you really were in this fight or flight mode. And perhaps nothing is a better example of that when I just got back from Ukraine, literally just adopting our kids, got off the plane on, uh, on New Year's Eve 2003, New Year's Day 2004 followed. And I got a call from the board of GearWorks, a board member that said, hey, we just made a change. You're the new CEO if you want to take it. Now think about this. I just adopted two kids. <laughs> My whole world was going to change in ways I couldn't even imagine. They didn't speak any English. And I said, sure, I'll take it, right? But I'll tell you what, the company was without money. We were focused on the wrong opportunity, it wasn't sustainable. And it was just a dramatic change and had to go raise capital and transform the company and all pivot, so to speak, as we, we commonly say in the startup world. And it scared the living daylights out of me because I had no reprieve. I was scared at home. I was scared at work. But, but the, what I learned at that moment in time as an individual, as a parent, as a, an executive, as a leader of a team of people in a company was unbelievable. It was just this crucible of learning that was compressed, probably 20 years of experience compressed in, in a couple of years. And that's why I say, what I would say to myself is run towards what scares you. I love it. That's, I love that phrase too. It, it feels like it should be a bumper sticker. <laughs> you, could, you should trademark that. <laughs> that's funny. Well, a um, couple of fun questions for you. This one I'm testing now. I actually stole it from another <laughs> or borrowing it from another podcast that I listened to. But I'm curious if there's been a purchase that you've made, say in the last, I don't know, say six to 12 months of $100 or less. And you, you can fudge a little around the edges there on the time or the amount that's been most impactful for you. Oh, wow. You borrowed that one, huh? Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> I, I kind of like the answers I get. So I, like there are tips for me, you know, purchases I might want to make too, so. It, this may seem pretty mundane, but for me, it really was a Kindle. And what drove it was I realized that my need to expand my universe beyond every day just being consumed, unendingly consumed in kind of coming up to speed with business data and, and insights relevant to the role in the space that I'm in. I felt my world getting somewhat stovepiped. And the need for broadening my perspective, that intellectual curiosity kicked in beyond the space. And uh, of course, none of us have any time, but I realized that when you take all these moments that you have, standing in line at an airport, which I miss now, boarding a flight when you can't use any electronics and, and get working on your computer, those moments could be consumed with this goal of getting a broader perspective on the world around me. So others perhaps do that as a way of life, and I commend them. But for me, that was uh, a little purchase I made uh, about a year and a half ago. That's been uh, very gratifying. Yeah, I like that. One. I like that one. Well, um, another hopefully fun one. Uh, marketers tend to be kind of as observant of what's going on around them. And I'm curious if there's any brands, companies, or causes that you follow or you think other people should be taking notice of. 
Well, you are right. Uh, I mean, I've been hyper observant during this, uh, the last 60 days, uh, especially hold up here and shelter in place in California. And I, while I can't speak of specific brands, and I probably will mention a few in the process, I've been watching TV and I've noticed those that are really good and shifted quickly to crisis marketing. I just recently, uh, you know, just last night saw a Toyota commercial where they didn't talk about the cars. It was just a spokesperson, spokeswoman in this case, sat there and just kind of related to where people are at and said, hey, just want to let you know that our service department is open for those of you that don't have the luxury of staying home. And we're doing all the things to keep our people safe, but we're there for you. So really the the shift that's taking place by some organizations that are doing very well and some that are failing. Another great one that came to mind, and this is about empathy, is the, the CEO of Walmart. And maybe you've seen this on TV, the CEO of Walmart where there's, you know, the number of employees in Walmart's hundreds of thousands. There's just no way you can have an all hands meeting with that crew, right? So he took to mass media and he had what looked literally like holding a, a cell phone and doing a selfie. And he was communicating via media to all of his employees. And he recognized them for being part of that front line in this uh, pandemic and the role that they played and the pride that he had and the appreciation. And it was very authentic in feel and in execution. And it caused you to think as an individual differently about Walmart. You know, I've always viewed them as uh, unfortunately uh, causing a lot of disruption on their way to ever lower prices for the masses. But it was a very different type of empathy moment that was authentic. And then I compared that to Amazon's commercial where they tried to do the same, but it was this spokesperson person's voice. There was no executive there delivering this message in his own words and his own voice. Even the people they showed in the warehouses looked unhappy. They looked kind of very stoic and almost a bit afraid. I mean, it just didn't have the same impact. So it's not just crisis marketing. It's important of having that authentic moment that really kind of bubbled up for me. So there's a couple of examples that I think uh, hopefully are our listenership has had a chance to experience on their own as we all huddle around the TV. Yeah, no, that's, that's, those are great. Those are great. And now I'll, I'll um, try to dig those video clips up and uh, link to them too in the show notes. But I have one last question for you and it's, it's probably uh, going to be a, potentially tainted by what's going on right now, but curious to get your perspective on what you feel like is either the largest opportunity or the largest threat that marketers face today? Yeah, at this exact moment in time, boy, does that ever get tainted. I think the largest threat, and it's it's very poignant right now, is that in our pursuit of efficiency through all of these amazing tools that we have as part of the marketing tech stack today, all the ways in which we can reach people in all the moments, that we don't really focus on the fact that customers all live in a buying journey and that customers today, more than ever, really hunger for authenticity. And they hunger for it because, frankly, the social media backdrop is anything but authentic, right? Everybody's living their best virtual lives in social media. We don't communicate as much one-to-one. We don't communicate as much voice-to-voice. And what it's created is a hunger for authenticity and a hunger to relate to the companies we're, we're buying 
products and solutions from. And I think for marketeers, that means that, I mean, let's take MySpace, for example. Hey, we're networking. And networking has really been dominated by Silicon Valley as, as much of the origin of, of new technologies and new categories is. But, but I think at this time and place, you can be from Boise, Idaho, where CradlePoint is headquartered, and you can build an authentic tech-first company. And frankly, if you do it right and you pay attention, I think there's a lot of people out there that hunger to be connected to companies that come from interesting places, that feel more authentic, that relate to what the company is willing to expose about who they are, how they live, and the people that comprise it. And I think that's a real advantage for a lot of companies all over the world, maybe not in the major corridors of your industry, to go and compete. And I think it also really is a mandate for marketeers to think beyond the tools, beyond the tech, and don't lose touch of the humanity that's required in marketing now more than ever. I love it. That's great advice, not just for now, but forever. So thank you. Well, Todd, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. It's been fascinating and we're going to try to rush and get this episode out because because uh, right now is when people need to hear the hear your thoughts. So thank you. Thanks for the opportunity, Alan. I've enjoyed it a lot and this is a great podcast. Thanks for Thanks for hosting it. Thank you. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.